there in the galaxy, it's time for another episode of Star Wars All In, the show that goes all in on all the details, all the characters, all the things and stuff and awesomeness that is that galaxy far, far away. Oh boy, we've got an episode for you. My name is Mac, I'm one of your hosts, and I'm going to be joined by my fellow MST3K alumni, Ross, for this episode. Mac, as always, it is great to be here, but today is going to be an extra fun, extra special episode. Oh yeah. I can't wait. Here we are, we're at the beginning of April, we've been talking about the way things have been going with our, our, our podcast, we're very happy with everything, we're very thankful for all the new listeners we have, and everything is great, and we decided that we were going to do something stupid, <laughs> and so we did it. Uh, today we have three topics for you, but our first topic is probably the longest topic we will ever have, I, I don't know, <laughs> I shouldn't say ever, <laughs> Maybe I'm setting ever. ourselves up for failure, Yeah, but... we did a really long Rise of Skywalker reaction topic, so... Uh, that was a special episode. That's this is true. just a topic. I don't know why we're doing this as a topic and not a special, but fine. we are. It'll be fine. Uh, we're going to watch Return of the Jedi. Yeah, we are. And we're going to give you some commentary on it. So this is going to be sort of our watch along Return of the Jedi commentary. Uh, you've probably seen this enough times to picture it in your head. But hey, if you want, pop this in, uh, starting with the crawl. And, and we'll we'll mention uh, yeah. we've already recorded. We're going to mention points where like you can sync back up if, if anything. But thankfully, thanks to digital technology, and you're not listening to us on a tape recorder, you should be able to basically just start with the crawl at the cue that we give you and yeah. follow it the whole way through. Absolutely. So, uh, but we'll remind you just in case yeah. you get a little out of sync or you pause and have to go to the bathroom. That kind Absolutely. of stuff. Absolutely, we understand that. I do uh, it all the time. But we're stupid, so that's not all we're going to talk about that's today. That's just topic number one. <laughs> that's no, topic number one. It's unthinkable to only do one topic. And that's where we're going to go. We're going to go to the Mr. Unthinkable himself, advisor to the queen, C.O. Bibble. <sighs> I can't wait. You know, uh, the queen's book gave this character a whole new level of understanding, a whole new <laughs> level of meaning. We have so much more detail now about Mr. Bibble. He's the one who kept the Naboo people together in the mm -hmm. refugee camps. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so there's so much good stuff to talk about with him, so I can't wait. And because we've done OT, prequel, now we're going to do one more sequel thing. We're going to talk about the strand-casted offspring of Palpatine. Let's just call him Sheev Jr. for now. Sheev Jr., Ray's dad, whatever you want to call him, we're going to talk about We're going to dig into all the information we have on him. Oh, and there's so much. It's going to be great. And it's going to start right after this. back to MCU All In. Mac, did you think in 2010, right, we're only a couple movies 
into the Marvel Cinematic Universe here. You know, we've had a couple other Marvel movies. You know, we've had some X-Men stuff come out from Fox. We've had Eric Bana as the Hulk. But now we're starting off here again. You know, 2008, we get Iron Man. We get the Hulk shortly after. And now here we are just a few years later, Iron Man 2, the beginning of this huge expanding universe that just 10 years, 20 years later is going to be... This massive thing, right? I guess this is what this is the this would have been the third movie, right? Because Hulk yeah. would have came out, Hulk and then been this. Out before this, yes. Okay. So, do you think you know this whole thing, right? All it's going to turn into this giant, giant thing. Do you think this scene in the Senate Armed Services Committee, when you're <laughs> watching that, do you expect 15 years later to be fighting Thanos? Like this just it's just you know you you have all of these like little moments throughout Marvel movies right that can be so fun in the moment yeah but in the grand scheme of things are so nothing but what I oh. love about Marvel is it yeah. all ends up connecting in different ways and we're gonna get not only a really great character introduction here that we're about to talk about mm-hmm. but in this scene we get other things you know government intervention in the Iron Man program essentially the beginning of War Machine we get Senator Stern here that I like the Pennsylvanian senator by the way oh yeah uh, he is yeah yeah uh, who's gonna turn out later to be a Hydra agent right a Hydra sleeper right. agent so you have all of these things that will later come back to play a part in the larger Marvel Universe. And it's just these little sprinklings here, you know? And, of course, part of that is just really impressive what Marvel is really good at doing of, you know, taking something in the past and recontextualizing it. Right. And so before we even get into our topic here on this episode, (laughs) I think it's just worth pointing out how interesting a scene like this that can seem so almost nothing at the time other than a moment for jokes and quips can turn into something bigger later. I mean, okay, so the show is Marvel All In, right? Right. So, I mean, we rewatch this stuff a lot, but I mean, like, how long has it been since you actually watched Iron Man 2? I know for me, rewatching it for this, like, I probably haven't watched through most of it in, like, a long time, let's okay. say. <laughs> and I probably watch it about once a year or so. Wow. I, I would say. I would say I'd probably do a full Marvel rewatch about once every year. I should probably do that. Since I'm a host of the show, I should probably rewatch stuff that I know, isn't the last. I know, like going clip to clip from time uh, to time, right? Uh, yeah, and I and I end up in the Marvel database, <laughs> uh, you know, our off-quoting place where, you know, fans have given me all the information and I mostly trust it's there and check sources every once in a while. Yeah, I mean... I think it's one of the things of like when I realize that Marvel is the most expensive TV show ever made mm-hmm. and the way that it's serialized, especially as it goes on, it becomes much more interlocking gears. There's a certain level of like, you know, if I was the host of, say, I don't know, a Star Trek podcast, I assume like I'd be collecting the vibe of like the show more often than I would be like really like serially watching through every episode. Because again, so much of what you end up with impressions right is the arcs the feel of different characters the kind of memories of how things went through the pinball machine than it is like remembering the specific moments or intensities of scenes right Uh, completely understandable but what's so funny is i think that's just this day and age right like growing up you know us each vhs was where we were right we were that generation 
uh, you were kind of right at the beginning of it, actually. And so, you know, we grew up like I had my Star Wars special edition tapes and my Jurassic Park tape and the same movies just over and over again because that's what you had. And you'd you'd memorize those small details. And now we live in this time where there's, you know, even this year coming off of a pandemic, there's four Marvel movies coming out in the last six months of this year, right? Right. Plus, what, four TV shows throughout the course of the year or five? I can't even remember how many. It's very, very busy. Right? So, like, it's understandable that your average everyday person with the onslaught of content that we're subjected to, not just from Marvel, but from every streaming service in the universe. Oh, man. I hope there's some kid out there that's like me who ended up with, like, Back to the Future Part 2, Transformers, and uh, Return of the Jedi, and just watch those too many times. I hope some kid's like, no, I think The Incredible Hulk's awesome. Do you remember all of these different, like, you know, or, or just like Thor 2's my favorite movie. I've seen it a hundred, hundred times. Like, rock and roll, kid. Good for you. You have a different perspective from everyone else but see that's what i love about it um i mean so the biggest thing when it comes i mean the whole point we're making here is that this giant interconnected universe is an incredibly oppressive achievement yes very much there there is nothing else that has ever done anything like this you know the the closest thing in kind of modern context is probably the fast and furious franchise but that's ironically a different kind of crazy (laughs) you know yeah and 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 so okay back to the top so, so we're let's talking talk about, about our topic. Yeah, we're talking about Justin Hammer, and I think it's a good example of showing, I would say, the intrigue of Marvel in the sense of, like, here's an important character from the comics, recontextualized like we were doing, especially at the beginning of, of Marvel. Uh, I think things are getting ushered in from the comics a lot less altered just because the universe has gotten so much bigger and audiences have gotten so much more accepting of the weirder, like... The, the fact Doctor Strange can float into the scene and everyone's like, oh, yeah, as a sorcerer. Like, <laughs> they're fine with that. We couldn't do that in 2010, right? We we had to build up to that. And so yeah. Justin Hammer is recontextualized here. And I think what's cool about it is, like, Justin Hammer hasn't really been seen since this movie. But if he walked onto the stage, like, at any moment, I'd be like, wow, okay. Like, <laughs> that's on the it. table. Like, yeah. that's such an amazing thing yeah. that, like... At no point do I think Justin Hammer has walked out of the Marvel Universe. It's just we haven't heard from him in a while kind of thing, right? So, like you said, we start with the, yeah. the Senate Army Ladies Services com- um, Committee. Yes. And, yes, um, <clears throat> the government pulls a witness to kind of talk to some of the the terror weapons that Tony Stark's yes. developing and holding on to this weapon tech for himself, which as a private citizen, I don't know if that's appropriate. <laughs> what do you have to say, expert wit- witness from the other major arms company? <laughs> Just happens to be the government's primary weapons contractor as well, of course. Well, ever since the Stark Corporation started pulling back their weapons tech uh, because they, had they got all peacenik. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so this is where we first get to meet Justin Hammer, played by Sam Rockwell, who has been, even at this point, he's just coming fresh off of Moon. Moon, yeah. <laughs> which is an amazing film. I mean, well, amazing might be strong, but it's really good. You should watch it if you haven't seen it. And uh, so, like, coming off of that, this is a, a, a different choice, but it's great. He's great. He fits in. He drops in perfectly right away, and mm-hmm. he's just in it. And you, there, you never have a second doubt about who this character is. You know immediately from the beginning, through his performance, what he's going to be. He is going to be... 
a mirror of Tony Stark in a lot of ways. He is the runner up. He, he is the value brand Tony Stark. He is the first five minutes of Iron Man one Tony Stark. Yeah, continuing down that yeah, path, but not a genius. Um, a general manager. <laughs> well, kind of, except for the fact. Remember that Tony Stark in the beginning of Iron Man is a genius. Who doesn't apply himself? Oh, that's right? very so true. He could very in, true. It took him being stuck in a cave for him to go. Oh, the arc reactor could be yeah. the size of a half dollar. It doesn't have yeah. to be a building. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if he doesn't apply himself, isn't the right way to put it. But I know what you mean. Absolutely. Well, he's he's a playboy. He's yeah. laid back. He, he doesn't priorities. care what the companies yeah. do. It's like, hey, this is the Jericho missile system. Yeah. We can blow up everything. Isn't? Are we great? He's not in the lab building the missile. He's just right. the salesman out there with it. I get what you're saying for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think he's building the missiles either. Good point. Okay. That's true. Okay. So, <laughs> so, all right. Now, here's what I want to point out about this scene. So, you know, Senator Stern goes, oh, okay, bring in our primary weapons contractor, expert on the matter, blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. And Tony immediately starts throwing out jabs. He's the one that takes the first swing here. Because Tony is still Iron Man 1 Tony in a lot of ways. You know, yes, he's had his transformative experience where he's got different values now. But he still is that eccentric person. It's not really until this movie that he's going to transform a little bit and have a little bit more of a change in his character arc to become that kind of slightly more peaceful person, slightly more in agreement working with the government. You know, that happens because of this film and because of the trauma he goes through in it. I think the biggest thing is in Iron Man 2, we see the transition from Tony... um, Recovering from his trauma that sets everything off in Iron Man being, you know, captured and forced to do that and find out what his company's been doing and what Obsidian Stain has been doing with his technology and coming to grips with that. And this is sort of the still crescendo of that, where he's basically telling the government, like, it's mine and you can't have it. That's exactly what this is. And this is another great example, too, of Tony essentially creating a villain. So that's worth pointing out here because that is what's happening in a way is Tony is creating a villain. So let's get on to the man himself now. Now that we've fully set the scene, I think we can say, right? Yes. So he gives this kind of really interesting speech about how Iron Man is a sword, but Tony wants to convince the world it's a shield. And I really like that because one, you know, hinting at sword and shield a little bit more, which we'll talk about later, Um, even though it's unrelated, it's just a fun little throw in there i think that might have been purposeful maybe not but also one could argue it sets up ultron that's exactly what i was gonna say it is in a way where tony's mindset is going to go you know with ultron which also creates all these other things that have effects later anyway not gonna get into that you're good so this is where we get into uh tony hijacking the tvs you know because he's basically showing that these places are not in control. These places are not working on tech. And there's a video of Justin Hammer, you know, trying to get a suit to work. And the suit does a complete 180 on the top half, basically breaking the pilot's well, spine. And that's the thing is, and it's morbid because we know there's a person in there. because yeah, you hear the scream. Because what you're seeing is what is the most traditional part of Justin's character. So just Justin Hammer from the comic books is a much older man. He was more of a corporate rival to Tony's father. Um, and so Howard Stark was more dealing with Justin Hammer. And Justin Hammer's whole thing was he has always been the guy trying to steal tech. 
He's always been the number two weapons contractor in the world, always trying to beat Stark's company. And the way he was always doing that was, well, we could do it legitimately. And we have built our own weapons and our own things. And like, this is a legitimate company. But Justin's obsession with trying to outdo Stark leads him down all the bad tech espionage and stuff. And that's what we're seeing Justin Hammer doing. He's like, like we're trying to build our own Iron Man suits and we're breaking people in half, but I don't see the problem because I'm a young man who also like Tony Stark is more obsessed with the results than I am with like the, uh, like I'm trying to be the Tony Stark. I think he is not the guy he is now. You know what I mean? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. He's jealous. Yeah. Ultimately is what it is. Absolutely, yes. And I love as the audience in this packed Senate hearing, of course, because there's all these cameras and reporters, starts going wild as they're seeing these videos and questions start flying and cameras start growing. Justin Hammer has to go up to the microphone and just kind of whisper, I want to point out that that pilot survived. Not is going to make a full recovery, not is fine, just survived. Which I like the... that choice of words. And for the record, I do like that because... I'm glad we didn't just see a Mortal Kombat fatality there. Like, that we did see someone who has never going to use their legs again, but, (laughs) you know, is probably okay in a wheelchair somewhere with a very powerful back brace. (laughs) And hopefully a pension. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you hope the hazard pay covers some of this, right? Yeah, yeah, I hope so. (laughs) Uh, You think Hammer doesn't seem like that type of guy, but who knows? But Hammer seems like it probably has a good HMO. Yeah, maybe they have a union. (laughs) Anyway, uh, I, let's get to the uh, next. Yeah, scene. I would suspect that they would be for Stark. Just uh, <laughs> Howard Stark does not seem like a. Anyway, uh, so Tony walks out, blowing kisses uh, at the senators and Hammer and everybody, and then we don't see Justin again until the scene in Monaco. Right, because what we see is we have our what every trailer told us is the primary villain, which he is like, he's the primary antagonist. I mean, Justin Hammer is the, the mastermind sort of in the background, allowing a lot worse things to happen, if you will. But like whiplash comes in, destroys Tony's car is using Stark tech that he is engineered into these giant whip arms. And you know, Justin Hammer sees the opportunity of like, wait, wait, that guy could probably make a suit that doesn't rip people in half. (laughs) (laughs) And immediately before this, I just want to point out, because there are a couple good moments immediately before. Oh, okay. Before this, okay? So um, they get, you know, Tony Pepper arrive in the restaurant. Uh, At this point, Black Widow secretly has entered the fray of Stark Industries, you know, infiltrating as his new assistant, although we don't know that yet. And... They're making their way through this little, you know, bar restaurant area where they'll oversee this Grand Prix race that they're about to watch. And Tony has a car in it and all that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But there's just a scene where they're leaning up against the bar and there's this great long shot, you know, where you're seeing like down the bar. And all of a sudden, Sam Rockwell just pops out from the side. And it's just this really, because you don't see him there. They don't set it up. And all of a sudden, he's just popping out. And it's just this great little shot. And he just goes, Anthony, is that you? And he keeps calling him Anthony throughout the whole thing. And only when he's not being mad at him. But it's really, really good. Just that little scene. Whoever, you know, filmed that was great. There's an energy about this version of Justin Hammer that is just, Really delightful in the sense of he's very uh, derpy in a oh, way. Absolutely. Like there, there's a certain level of like 
uh, privileged Silver Spoon kid where he just really probably can't relate to normal people at all. Uh, and there is a certain level of like, you could see he was like a freshman when Tony was a senior at college Absolutely. and they pledged to the same frat. And so like Hammer's like, oh, we're basically the same. And Tony's like, no, we're not. <laughs> well, what's funny here is we're about to see another little moment of that playing out yeah. where he introduces her to Christine Everhart, Vanity Fair, the woman from the beginning of Iron Man 1 that Tony went home with, right? Right. So it is that like on-screen example. Now, if you're not, you know, in 2010, you know, half the audience may not even recognize this, but you know, this is Justin Hammer being a step behind Tony. This right. is an on-screen example of that. I'm doing what you did. A couple of years later, or six months later in the timeline, I think it is, right? And it's just, she's not even that interested in him, but he's trying to basically force it. Boat you know? it. Gate. Yeah. Like, goat, goat him of like, mm-hmm. I'm basically just like you, Tony. Exactly. basically the same it's, it's just so it's a good example of the filmmaker of Favreau it, showing us this yeah and we're having fun because again he's also chasing what Tony Stark was because Justin Hammer didn't watch Iron Man 1 he doesn't know what happened there <laughs> right, right, right 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 exactly uh, he also has a few great lines here you're not the only rich guy with a fancy car uh, is a good one. And then when they're taking a picture, you know, together, and Tony obviously doesn't want to. He puts his sunglasses on. He goes, it's for the kids. It's for the kids. It's like these little one-liners. Come on. They just the... really, really work well. Um, and it's just a nice change of pace from just Tony cracking the jokes. Yeah, and I think, like I said, I think Justin just also represents just, like, corporate negligence. Like, he's not evil in a I'm trying kind of way. He's just sort of, like falling backwards into being evil because of his own character flaws. Like when he hires after this whole sequence, you know, when he hire well, hires, when he collects uh whiplash to help him engineer his stuff, there's just totally like, you are a solution to my problem. That's all I'm seeing here. I'm not seeing that you're a crazy Russian person with a personal vendetta. I'm not really cognitive of that. I just see as a guy who could fix my robots. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is what it feels like, right? Is someone who has, and that's because he's lacking the brain that Tony has. It's Correct. the one thing he doesn't have. And it's what truly sets Tony apart. You know, Tony's money and his persona. Yeah, obviously he could be a, tabloid star with that but it is his brain that but it but it's yeah, it's his smarts and his i mean he was a well i would prodigy, say you know i would it's, say that's what puts him to a new level i think the two things about tony stark that will make him never become a justin hammer is it's his it's his smarts that elevate him that's the thing justin can never have exactly but the other thing that justin will never have is Justin doesn't have that support network that's forcing Tony to be a better person. Because one of the things I really like about Tony Stark is when I remember reading comic books, there's a little line I remember that like summed up Tony Stark to me. And it's like always the North Star of like if I think Tony's being written right or wrong was Tony Stark's a really good guy who could be a hell of a lot better. And when you see in this movie, you know, influences around him like Rhodes and Pepper and to a lesser degree like Black Widow, you start seeing the fact that like it's going to be him meeting people like Captain America oh, yeah. and dealing with Nick Fury and all these people that Tony, if he was alone like Justin is, he could have ended up staying that monster. It's the fact he no longer has Obsidian Stain influencing him. He has good people that eventually gets him to be the guy who stares down Thanos. Because he's staring down Thanos 
for other people, not himself. Absolutely. And his selfishness is his kryptonite. That's the thing he's always having to like overcome is his own ego and self-importance. And God, is he a different character by the time he gets there than this movie where he's starting that journey, right? Um, and Justin is such a great mirror of just representing that other path, that place he could fall back into if he's not being kept honest. I absolutely agree. And that, what I love about that is Tony's arc, you know, his entire character arc plays out over the span of 23 films or whatever it is, right? Yeah. You know, like, obviously he's not in every single one of them, but... What we see got close a, by the end. Yeah, what we see in Iron Man One, right, is the beginning of his transformation. It's not the entirety of it, and that is what I think the best Marvel movies do so well. Yeah, you know, it's great. I love it. Okay, so this is where we get. You know, Vanko goes to prison after attacking Tony. You know, he makes the god bleed. Ha ha ha. You know that old reference. Now people know he's. I forgot not how well drafted of a character this is. He's like oh, really yeah. interesting. The setup. It's been a while. So the fact that this movie opens immediately, where I mean, there's a time jump right after this, but this movie opens immediately where Iron mm-hmm. Man one ends makes it so interesting to me. Yeah. Because the only other time we've had that really is Infinity War and Endgame. Right. So it's, it's, I love it. I love when movies do that, when a story is truly, when there's no time. Gap. When it's serial. Yeah. It's anyway. fully, yeah. So, you know, now Vonko's broken out of prison. Some poor guy who looks slightly like Mickey Rourke has been sacrificed with mashed potatoes. And here <laughs> we have now Vonko opens up in this white airplane hanger, this pristine white airplane hanger to show that he is having a chance now at getting out of the lower level of his upbringing. Mm-hmm. How would you put it? The, the poverty of his upbringing. I, I don't, I'm not trying to be offensive with it or anything. Just that's what they're showing. Well, here. Uh, yeah, it's trying to play a classist. Uh, yeah. Metaphor exactly. of the fact of, yeah. Hey, look, there's these two guys with silver spoons who are fighting each other, other places in the movie. And here's a person who really understands poverty. Like, to, to quote from another superhero movie, Tony, you were adopted by the cave. I was born to it. Like, he's been <laughs> oh, scrapping God, together. No. He's been scrapping together this technology with his mind, oh, yeah. you know, and his knowledge and what his father taught him. And like, he's been scrapping that together. He's been in the cave the whole time. He's never had means. And he's still finding ways to do this. He's We're seeing just how resourceful and how pushing above his... Um, circumstances he's been doing absolutely yes and okay so let's get into the scene itself here now yes so we open up the doors and justin hammer's there you know sitting at a little dinner table his little private wait staff yes <laughs> and so he starts off he has this kind of really big monologue here because Vanko doesn't really talk and you know he starts out oh i'm such a huge fan of yours oh i didn't want to make a first impression like this he's not an animal he's a human being because he's talking about you know he's handcuffed at this point so get the cuffs off of him type of thing uh and you know the classic aligning with the you know the your underling the, i'm gonna bring this guy in under my wing i'm gonna play the good guy you know all those classic yeah, the jokes, rich guy right? telling telling the the downtrodden person of like i'm just like you and i understand your plight <laughs> expressing just how much you don't understand him and you don't understand his plight just by the fact that you're trying to pretend that you have anything in common with this person exactly <laughs> My name's Justin Hammer. I'd like to do some business with you. The way he says it is just so good in that moment. Yeah. What I saw you do to Tony Stark in front of 
God and everyone. Just some really great <laughs> writing here. You spoke to me. You don't just go and try and kill the guy. You go after his legacy. And that's where he says, this is what I want to be. I want to be the guy behind you. I want to be your benefactor. Right. I'd like to be that guy. And his response, of course, is very good. <laughs> that's what Vago says. Very good, man. Because there's this whole great moment of, do you need a translator? I can get a translator. Do you understand what I'm saying here? <laughs> yeah, there's a great thing is he's just delivered this, you know, Sam Rockwell's biggest scene in the movie, like delivering this beautiful monologue. There's a part where, yeah, you're like, oh no, did I just do all that and you didn't get it? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's great. And it also sets off this tiny other little subplot of him, of Ivan going, I want my bird. <laughs> Bring me my bird. Yes. <laughs> Just so, because he's got this, what is it, a parrot, a cockatoo? I don't know, birds. Uh, yeah, I think it's... It's a white bird with, like, some yellow feathering. It's either a cockatoo, it's cockatiel or a cocktail. Yeah. It, I'm not, mm, I don't know. Well, I feel anyway, like, I, sh- I, feel like I failed my research by not finding out important information. I know. Like, we what species of bird that this. is. We, we are supposedly experts. We should know He this. needs his bird friend. That's the he important thing. He needs his bird the way he says it is correct, Boots. too. And this is Mickey Rourke right off of The Wrestler, too. Oh, so yeah. So he's just going hey. Academy Award nominee. Yeah. And yeah. also, I think this is the same year he did Expendables. This is a big time for Mickey Rourke. Yeah. And, well, and and the story, I mean, I don't know if you recall it. The story at the time was also, like, another sort of, for lack of a better term, push-to-the-side actor getting a shot at glory again because The Wrestler was sort of, like, Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man of like, oh, yeah, we, come back in. You're allowed back in the club. Because <laughs> uh, Mickey Rourke was kind of on the outs with mainstream Hollywood for a long time, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So anyway, another just great characterization here of this villain. Now, the, that's it. That's the end of the scene. And some yeah. more things happen. And the next time we see Justin Hammer, he's back with Vanko. Right. And this time he's showing him the drones. Right. So. He's mad that they're drones. He wants them to be suits. You know, you you told me suits. You said no problem. That's what you said to me. So I'm not understanding. And he goes through this whole great scene with his like little assistant who's there. Can can you put your head in there? Try to fit your head in there. See, Ivan, he can't fit his, his head, head in, in there. there. And it's just another. Yeah, because it's the little like like the uh, like cigarette lighter type helmets. It's just like so stupid. I love it. Um, yeah, and so like if I goes just kind of like drones better. <laughs> like that's like sort of his summation he's just like he's heard everything Justin just complained about and, like just doesn't care <laughs> <laughs> but it's great it's like one of my favorite moments because it's just showing that this guy obviously has an alternate plan that we haven't seen yet and again it's also having in my opinion the fun of this version of Justin Hammer of making you know let's be honest injecting a little Mark Zuckerberg, a little Silicon Valley nonsense into this character (laughs) of where he's just, he's like eccentric to a, yeah, no, maybe we as a civilization shouldn't have given you all this power and money. You don't seem mature enough to have it. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Yeah, you're right. And this would have been early on in that time. This is when like, again, Silicon Valley people like, like again, where Mark Zuckerberg is not what we think of him now, but like he would have been again a guy coming up with like you know a a a hoodie onto a stage of shareholders, yeah, and that was yeah. 
what he decided to do, not get a suit like I'm sure 1,500 people yelled at him. You know, yeah. The general is... population, we had not seen the social yet network yet. We didn't know, okay? We didn't well, know. Again, this is just when he's an eccentric kid who has social right. issues being in charge of, one of, uh, of a rising company. And again, a company that already has more success than we can really fully grasp <laughs> we hadn't you know ruined democracy yet or anything yet but um, <laughs> um yeah i just got i'm just thinking about that, like that era like 2010 and stuff and like yeah the xbox guys who have like a hoodie but then a blazer over that because they're trying to be like the cool hip kids but they also actually oh, have to talk to people God, who have money yes, like they have to go talk well. to bain capital after this meeting so <laughs> they don't have time to change so they have to just split the difference right exactly and i'm like <laughs> and i feel that's a little bit what Justin oh, hammer is summing it. up is even though he's in a beautiful crisp suit like again that eccentricity is is kind of running through of like you can't put your head in there that doesn't work like <laughs> like yeah it, it's such a great contrast because picky works ivan is just so focused this is a guy whose whose primary like trait is driven yeah yeah i mean <laughs> spot on and also to be fair smart oh he, wickedly he, smart he has the brain that Hammer does Hammer covets. And Hammer's like, cool, and I'll just be the silver tongue that supports you, yeah. as if he needs that. Yes, I love it. <laughs> okay. Um, so this is an important thing that we have to say has happened here is now uh, Don Cheadle, right, who has come into the Marvel Universe through what I hope will be one day proven as like a wormhole or an alternate timeline switcheroo with Terrence Howard. I hope one day we'll get an in-universe justification for that. Anyway, he's now shown up in this universe as Colonel James Rhodes, and he steals the War Machine armor, the silver Iron Man, what is it, Mark II armor or whatever, from Tony. Yeah, yeah so the, the original set of Iron Man armor that Tony does the flight tests in Iron Man 1 before he builds yeah. the Mark III, which is the hero suit, the golden yellow from the first movie. Yeah. So he steals that, and uh, that's after... Well, we don't have time to talk about everything in Iron Man 2, but man, I know this is God, the I Iron love that Man scene. 2 topic, but maybe it should have been. Maybe oh, we should have done the whole movie now. We don't well, have to do that. <laughs> we have to do two other segments today, too, buddy. <laughs> good, point, um, good point. But uh, yeah, so he steals that, and that, that, yeah, that becomes the framework that becomes War Machine. Yes, absolutely. And he takes it back to the Air Force hangar, and they bring in who? Justin Hammer. Well, yeah, he's America's number one top defense contractor. Who and else I, could work on it? And I love that he comes in. He's just casually eating a lollipop. And he goes, ooh, is it my birthday? <laughs> like, what a ridiculous line. But it's just, it's the character. It works so well. It's so yeah, fun. Again, yeah. And, and again, this is a fun turn for Justin in the sense of, like, he just got done being mad with Ivan's work. And the Stark tech literally drops in his lap. <laughs> Yes, it does. I mean, basically rendering everything he's done to this point useless, which is kind of funny, but it serves the plot in a really interesting way. Which and is again, great. that whole it's my birthday thing of like, and he doesn't care. Like, yeah, he's fine. Like, oh, plan A, plan A, gone. Plan B. We're on plan B now. This is great. <laughs> and he ends up using it for his own benefit. But we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. So there's this whole great montage of him pulling out all these different kinds of weapons, which... To be honest with you, by today's standard, feels a little tame, but in 2010 was a really fun and kind of ridiculous scene. And he has this whole great monologue about this little missile that he calls the ex-wife because it, you know, it takes everything from you. And so he goes through <laughs> how great this is. It's his greatest invention. It's the biggest thing he's ever done. It's the biggest, the best. He doesn't have anything better than this. And they go through this whole thing. 
and uh, Rhodey's just looking at him deadpan along with his superior there. And he goes, you guys, you got to give me something here. You haven't said a word. What do you, what do you want? What do you, what do you, what will it be? And he goes, I want all of it. And like, it's a great moment. It is kind of a perfect example of like the most corny moments in the MCU. Yeah. But that's what makes this comic book and fun and not real world completely. Well, I don't want to say that, but real world enough for us to believe it. Because these are things that people might actually say. They're just kind of silly and goofy. And it's people trying to be cool and people try to be cool all the time. We're just used to movies where people just are cool. And like, (laughs) like, I think there's that's the relatability that Marvel brings. That's why we have an entire show about the Marvel Universe, because everyone can relate to it. Uh, Yes. Now, I didn't write down all of the lines of Sam Rockwell's montage here because (laughs) it's so good that you just have to go watch. Watch it and I can't do it justice. Yeah, if, if you know if this if, hasn't already encouraged you to go watch Iron Man 2 again, nothing will. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right. And then the next time we see Hammer, he is back with Ivan. You know, Ivan's yeah. in his room. They come in, they grab the bird, they put it in a sack, which, <laughs> which is, is not so what you want to do. You put a bird in a sack. Who does that? I, it's not a falcon. You can't just put the little hood on it and it's pacified. That's not, that's, you know what that bag is going to be full of by your time? Feathers and bird droppings. <laughs> Bird's just going to flap in there. And so at this point, Hammer's mad. This is the first time we see him pissed, you know, raising This is his, his villain moment. This is yeah. where we start seeing him going like, oh, no, he's not just a na- naive dweeb. He has a malice streak in him. Absolutely. And he basically is yelling, you know, I save your life. You give me suits. That was the deal. Luckily, this just happened to fall into my lap. So after the expo, I'll be back and we're going to renegotiate. That's basically his big kind of moment trying to be the tough guy against Vanko. And again, working like a businessman against someone who so far his job title would be terrorist. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, absolutely. Spot on. Now, this transitions pretty quickly into the Stark Expo, which we also did see at the very beginning of the film. That's where Tony had his entrance landing to ACDC with a bunch of mostly naked women dancing behind him. And now we have yeah. Hammer's intro, which is him kind of slowly and corn- very corny dancing out onto the middle of the stage, which yeah. is great. It's just another perfect example of characterization. Uh, and he's coming out, he's doing his little thing and goes on his big speech about how you know, we don't have to put soldiers in harm's way anymore. We have, you know, a new future for the army. And you see him beautifully marketing the thing he didn't want. He didn't want drones. But, hey, the drones are the product I have to sell, so I'm going to sell it. And, you know, he's selling it on the fact that, yeah, we don't don't need a person in the suit. (laughs) Yeah, and to lead all of this, you know, we've got new, we've got, and I love the variety in the suits here. This was something, you know, in watching this for the first time in the theater, I loved, still loved it upon, you know, every time I rewatch it is the variety of the drones here. You know, you have yeah. one for the Army, the uh, Navy, the Marine Corps, the Air Force, and they're each a little bit different. And I just, that design stuff, I love. The 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 action figure lover in me just enjoys, yes. like, again, like, Justin Hammer Drone, Army yeah. Edition, Justin Hammer Drone, Marine Edition, with aquatic <laughs> action. Like, um, and I also just, the Stark apps, as a person who loves the World Fair and wish we still had them in the same prominence we used to, like, 
I love the pageantry, all the star stripes and band, like all the overly jingoistic America stuff as he's presenting these suits, like just the Stark Expo as this giant showcase of like technology. It's just fun. Absolutely. It's the Tomorrow World Showcase, right? It's just, it's, it is fun. It's and a place get, you want to be and you want to go to. And I think we get such a great echo of that when you get to Captain America, the first Avenger, and we see yes. what those expos were when it was the world of tomorrow. And of course they're showing off stuff that Howard Stark's showing off of this will be in the world of tomorrow. And like, it will be because we've seen the world of tomorrow for your perspective, forties <laughs> man. Um, absolutely. It's just great. It's just great. A- absolutely. Um, also, if they can make these mechs, you know, the, these little guys, these robots, these drones look this good with 2010 technology, we could have a really impressive Metal Gear Solid movie by now. Yeah, they do have a little bit of that, like, angular look. They, yeah. They, they, yeah, they Especially look like... Especially, like, from MGS1. Oh, yeah, Arms Tech, yeah, the makers yeah. of Metal Gear Rex could definitely be designing these things. Oh, yeah, for sure. They're great. Uh, okay, so then we get another big, one of Justin Hammer's most lasting moments of the MCU, probably. He introduces us to War Machine for the first time. Yes. Because we need someone to lead these drones. You know, there will always be room for man in the theater of war, or... he says, or something like that. Uh, but that's where we get, you know, War Machine lands and the mask goes up and we see Rhodes is in Colonel there. Rhodes. And then we have that... Like, we've been all building to it, but it's such a kind of sort of celebration of, like, oh, no, is Rhodes on the wrong team? Like, it it feels that way because after Hammer's introduction of everything, it just feels like we're just opposed to Stark. Like, Stark is bad. And also, as a comic fan, I just got to say, chef kiss. Like, finally seeing the iron, the, the war machine suit was... So satisfying because I'm like, yeah. oh, it's like I thought it was from the comic books, and they use the Mark II, which is such a brilliant way of making it like less refined because it's literally last year's model of yeah. the Iron Man yeah. suit. Absolutely, it's still giving it's showing it, it's giving an in universe way for Tony to still have an advantage, yes, and be the larger hero, you know, the, the big gun, as it were. Yeah, but he doesn't have a mini cannon hanging out. That's up. true, he Conf- doesn't have a mini cannon. Uh, War Machine definitely makes a cooler action figure. And it, let's be honest, that minigun on his shoulder, like, that's War Machine. That's that's how you know it's War Machine. That's his thing. <laughs> Does it make sense? That doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> of course it makes... Listen, if Arnold can carry one of those around and shoot helicopters out of the sky, if, if then War Machine can certainly have one mounted it, on his it, shoulder. Isn't the one Fast and the Furious where, he, like, Rock breaks out of his cast and rips one out of a helicopter? Isn't that... Oh, my God. <laughs> Let's just say, miniguns are not very practical weapons unless they're stuck and bolted to something like a helicopter or ship. (laughs) But, God, are they cool! (laughs) Yes, and it works out here, but unfortunately Hammer doesn't get to go to the final fight. No. Because he is subdued at the expo by Pepper and Black Widow. Which is great! Uh, It's just great, and he ends up getting arrested. Yes. And this is where he goes full villain of, You're gonna pay, Pepper, I'll see you around, I'll get out of jail, and you're gonna pay for this. And I think in some other alternate timeline, I think Justin Hammer does play out as, like, if the Iron Man films and Iron Man character was still more sequestered in his own movies, we probably would have seen Justin Hammer again by now. Yeah, I think you're I right. think it's just the fact that, you know, we have Iron Man 3, and then sort of, like, then Iron Man's just part of the Marvel. He's the axis in which the Marvel Universe spins, and we don't really need to have a yeah. separate Iron Man movie because he's going to get so much screen time in yeah. everybody else's movie. There was a point around Age of Ultron where that kind of realization of like, 
oh, there probably won't be another solo Iron Man movie. That's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Hit me. And it was kind of disappointing. You know, at the time, it was kind of a letdown. And then when you get, I mean, Age of Ultron, of course, but Civil War and all of the other stuff that well, comes later, it does feel like a saddest. His character continues to grow and change. I think the biggest thing is when you those see... movies, and that's what matters. I think when you get to Civil War, that's where it kind of twisted, because the third Captain America movie ends up being the fourth Iron Man movie and the third Captain America movie at the same time. And the third Avengers movie. And the third Avengers. <laughs> In a way, yes. But that, I mean, let's be honest with you. That's okay. There are, yes, because that is what makes this whole thing so unique and yeah. so interesting is it doesn't necessarily stick to the labels it feels it needs to have. Like, we don't know, you know, what is uh, Thor Love and Thunder or Guardians Volume 3? Those could have crossovers in some way. Those could play with each other. Those characters could show up in each other's movies. And that kind of thing wouldn't be possible without the groundwork laid by these early films. And that is what makes this whole thing so The magic of Marvel as a property before this was always the fact that you had all these corrals of characters who 80% of them live in New York City. And so it was the idea that if Spider-Man swings into Hell Kitchen, he would find Daredevil there. Mm -hmm. And if Tony Stark takes a trip to Upper State New York, he could pass Xavier's school for gifted youngsters. It was the feeling that you had all this crossover potential because at some point Marvel just said, no, all of our characters live in the same world. They're experiencing the same lives, you know? So when the Baxter building blows up, it's, you know, it's a company that's owned by uh, this other, other Marvel character. It's Justin Hammer's company's coming in to clean it up or whatever. Like mm -hmm. it's that interconnectivity. And by the time you get to Avengers one, they sort of pay off the idea of that. Audience buy it like crazy, throw a billion dollars at it. And from there, you sort of see it run out its its momentum of still being timid around a connected universe. And yeah, by the time we get to Age of Ultron and on, we're basically just off to the races of like, this is a connected universe, you know. Again, to my point, yes, the Battle of New York happened. And guess what? Vulture's company is the one that cleaned it up because someone had to. And now yep. we're going to tell you who that was, yep. even though, no, there is no chance when they wrote Avengers 1, they were thinking of who's the cleanup crew for this. <laughs> Maybe that's an in, into, yes. into one of our characters. Yes. Like, And that interconnectivity is what is awesome. And that's why I said, like, Justin Hammer is arrested. He goes to jail. In fact, thanks to supplement material in the Iron Man 2 or Iron Man uh, 3 um, yeah. uh, special features. Yeah. They hire Sam Rockwell for his, for an interview, like all of like four minutes yeah. for this like uh, this interview where we're interviewing the the Mandarin. Well, Bing, Ben Kingsley, the actor yeah. as the yeah, Mandarin, Trevor um, is the character. He's right? being interviewed, but Trevor he's Flattery. at the same like what would you call it? It's not even like a high security. It's more of like a special privileges prison, like a prison for high profile like people. Yeah. Um, because Justin Hammer is there with his friend. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, they're all arrested in, uh, you know, the eastern side of the United States. So they all go to the same place. <laughs> right. You know, one was arrested in Florida, one in New York. So, hey. 
Well, but, well, I mean, that's where you get to again. This is this is one of what it will become eventually the super super villain yeah. prisons. Except this is definitely the white collar one. Where like, do you actually have powers? No. Okay, go to this prison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do we have to build a? Do we have to contract one. a special cell for you? Because if the answer is no, then you're going to this prison. <laughs> if the answer is yes, you're going to some. The raft. The raft. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. Oh boy, oh boy. Yeah, Vulture's in a much worse prison. I get the idea. Oh yeah, yeah. He, he's fighting. Um, well, he's also a blue collar. He doesn't deserve the oh, the boy, nice prison oh, that no. Justin Hammer gets oh, to go to. God, yeah. Mm, uh, but it was gross. cool to again. It's just a little cameo of Justin Hammer just reminding you he's in the universe. Yeah. He's serving out his prison sentences. And if you haven't um, watched this, go watch it. Yeah, Don't give away the spoiler. I, th- there's not enough to say here to really like. Yeah. Just go see it. Uh, but the point is, we just see that he's in prison serving out his sentence and that he still has the potential of once he gets out of prison, he could, he could be, he yeah. could, he could come yeah. back. And I yeah. think on a long enough timeline, <laughs> anything is possible. Red Skull came back. Well, I'm just saying I could anything totally see him being a problem for like Spider-Man, mm-hmm. right? Where mm-hmm. he, or even just his company could still exist. Well, that's what he means. Like him. Hammer Industries, like yeah. doing something like creating the Scorpion or something like yeah. that. Right. Um, so someone needs to make a goblin glider in this universe eventually. Wow. We really haven't touched on any of that. Spider-Man's in a really weird place because Spider-Man. All right. One last soliloquy on this. Let's not get into a Spider-Man topic now. No, but it's one of the things we, we, we've talked a lot about like how Marvel's evolved and how like solo movies aren't anymore. Like, and I think Spider-Man's one of the characters that's sort of weird like that in the sense that his movies are very interconnected, the two that we already have and the third one that's mm-hmm. upcoming. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of that, we're not really spending time with Spider-Man as a solo character, which is, I think, especially weird because Spider-Man spent most of his publication history as never being allowed on people's teams. <laughs> like he applied to the Avengers, applied to Fantastic Four, and he was yeah. turned down. But what's interesting, I just want to cut you no, off no. real quick and say, what's interesting is the whole first movie is about him dealing with that, about being solo, about being oh, yeah. on his own. Right? So it's like the universe isn't afraid to address it either. No, and and, and and the universe is also, I think, Spider-Man Homecoming is one of the bravest films in the sense of like, if we listen to studio executives, we would tell you Spider-Man's origin again yeah but there's been two spider-man franchises before this we assume you know what happened we're just gonna move on right which is amazingly brave but there's also still a part of me of like yeah but i kind of want to see the cmu version like basically i just wanted to mention ben parker if that's the only thing that's like super missing but like to me like a a spider-man movie where just Justin Hammer's company is funding some of Spider-Man's supervillains. I could totally see because I don't think they would be in the Petri dish they would be in the original comics where, like, J. Jonah Jameson's funding this, which (laughs) seems, like, really silly in the way that the CMU exists now. It seems like if a technological villain's coming after Spider-Man, it's either a self-made person like Vulture or it's someone who has funding from someone. like. Uh, it's almost surprising that Mysterio didn't have a connection to Justin Hammer. I mean, he half does just because of his associates are all people who probably half of them ended up trying to at least apply to Hammer Industries, <laughs> right? Um, it's fascinating. And again, I like the fact that, like we talked about, he's in the background. Sam Rockwell, if he's available, you got Disney money, you could hire him to come back for something. It's gonna happen. I can feel it in my bones. One day, and at this point, it'll be Terrence Howard. He will be back. 
that one I think he the could... The Multiverse of Madness is bringing Terrence Howard back, I'm telling you. I think it would be just fun to see him as a alternate Rhodes and just have that joke rather than, again, trying to make that Don Cheadle is the interloper from the other universe. It's going to Isn't it weird? Remember how controversial that was of, like, the guy from Hotel Rwanda is going to be Rhodes? Like, <laughs> like he's too skinny. Because, I mean, admittedly, like, Terrence Howard was like a butcher block man. Like, he, he fit the the visualization of the character of Rhodes from the comics a lot more who looked like someone who could serve as Tony Stark's personal bodyguard. <laughs> but like, I can't imagine a world where Don Cheadle's not I in. Know, like right? it's impossible so to great. see it any other so way than great. that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. good. So good. Okay. We, we do. Need to wrap yeah. Up. This is not we, Don Cheadle. All in. Well, no, this we, we haven't made it as like Iron Man two and what it did to the Marvel universe, yeah. which is sort of what we ended up yeah. doing. Well, that's, that's Justin Hammer's legacy. I think we're just so fixated on new stuff. We we don't go back to the classics. You know? I know. Well, it was fun talking about it, Mac. Tell them our next topic. Well, we're going to go in to talk about another classic. We're going to go update to Winter Soldier, and we're going to start talking about the Treskelion, the the headquarters of S.H.I.E.L.D. Jumping uh, over to Phase 2 next. I like it. All right, and that's going to be right after this. champions but in the end only one will go down in history only one will hoist this chalice of champions this vessel of victory the triwizard cup Harry Potter. No. No. Harry Potter! Harry! I protest! Harry, you put your name in a couple of the fire. No, sir. You asked one of the older students to do it for you? No, sir. You're absolutely sure? Yes, sir. And of course he is lying. The hell he is. The God of the Fire is an exceptionally powerful magical object. Only an exceptionally powerful confounder's charm could have hoodwinked it. Magic way beyond the talents of a fourth year. The Goblet of Fire constitutes a binding magical contract. Mr. Potter has no choice. He is, as of tonight, a Triwizard Champion. All right, it's time for us to continue our journey of looking at the Triwizard Tournament. Uh, I don't know, it's probably been a couple months since we talked about 
the like opening and how Harry Potter ends up as the fourth contestant in this. Yeah, the but... surprise fourth champion here. And we talked about one of the best lines from the <laughs> Goblet of Fire movie where Dumbledore just comes charging in the room, yelling at Harry yes. about putting his name in. It was just like, oh man, that was a good topic. He, he treats it like, that was like, like a senior prank. Like, what did you do? <laughs> did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? It's like shouting it at him. Oh, I so love good. it. Absolutely uh, love it. So we're going to go and uh, we're going to talk about the first task. Yes, we are. The the dragon challenge, the dragon egg. They, they never really give it a name, do they? The first challenge. It's the first task. Yeah. It's 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 the it's the first task of the Triwizard Tournament. And um, so Harry has been dealing with the social fallout of like everyone thinking he's a cheater <laughs> and that this is wrong and that yes. in the what is this? It's like the 125th running of the Triwizard Tournament. And in all that time, it's always been three. What are you doing? <laughs> I mean, it's in the name. Come on. It's not the quad Wizard Tournament. <laughs> no, it is not. But this year it is. And it's like, yeah. And so his friends are standing by him because that's course. what friends do. Yeah. And, well, and... Ron's a little iffy with him at first. but Well, because... Because Ron still doubts that, like, how did Harry's name get in there unless he yeah. did something, right? Yeah. He he thinks his friend is lying to him, right? right. And that's and that's more where the the fallout is. And it, I feel like 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 the other contestants are the ones who aren't really dicks to him. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody in the tent is like. You know, well, like Cedric uh, Diggory can't be a dick to anyone. He's well, just a swell person. No, that's, that's they, what those Hufflepuffs. They all have a level of respect for each other, and especially leading up to the first talent, you know, challenge, yeah. we're going to see it. They're all a little nervous, especially when oh. they find out. Well, find out air quotes. Well, especially what it's be. so they get in the tent, and there's Barty Crouch, and he's got this like leather bag. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about one quick thing I want to call out just real quick in the movie version. There's some great setup where you see Fred and George taking bets in the stands. Yes. I love that. I just love that little, that little like three seconds of footage they put in there is great. Well, you know, again, one of the things we get trimmed from the books is just how fun the Weasley twins are. So it's kind of nice to, again, when you get those moments and your brain just extrapolates to like the books where like, that's a whole thing of them being bookies and stuff for the Triwizard Tournament. The whole ride. Love it. Um, absolutely love it okay so we're in the tent and the four champions are there buddy crouch comes in and he gathers around in the film version hermione's there too because they had just had a moment where rita skeeter caught her and harry hugging because remember this book has all of the hey they're 14 now we can put like love triangle stuff into it so this is where all of that really starts yeah you know early on because now they're old enough to have an interest in each other whatever well and so now- that you know they're teasing us with that essentially. Um, but anyway, so that moment has happened and, you know, comes in and he has his arm around her. Dumbledore has his arm around her. What are you doing here? Is what are you doing here? Great <laughs> and she just kind of like sulks away. You know? Um, I was uh, sorry. 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 <laughs> I'll go. <laughs> yeah. It's just a funny little moment here that isn't in the book. I don't think. Um, so anyway, and we have here now the moment where even though all of the champions secretly know that this challenge is going to involve dragons, they've learned it one way or another. Yeah. yeah. The ship has many, many leaks. We learn, you know? Yes. Um, there are a few differences here. So in the, in the book, they're described as sort of pulling out these little statues of dragons with numbers around their neck. And it's not until Harry pulls his out of the bag that it moves and has any life. But in the movie, we see them pulled out essentially just miniature dragons, which is 
again, part of me just really enjoys the fact of like, oh, it's a cool little effect. I'm like, all you did was just like, all right, let's get the dragon model we have in the movie and uh, size yeah. down by by 80% and uh, now it's in their hand. Yes. <laughs> Job <absolutely>. done. <laughs> like there's something fun about like, it's an impressive effect, but like for God, it must've saved them so much time. Yeah. Like not having to go and get a statue and then make that statue turn into the dragon. Like, no, no, just it, it, it's the model we're going to yeah, use later the in the movie in your hand. Yeah. So they each reach in. And of course, Harry is well, last. And I love like in the movie version, like a party crash, like, all right, pull something out. <laughs> and then he's just like got this bag open and you kind of hear it like growling and there's sounds coming out of it. And when, <laughs> um, and when she reaches her hand down there, like there's like spikes and fire in there from these little micro dragons. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, they all have their dragons. Now they have their dragon in their hand, their yeah, order. So Floor pulls the common Welsh green, oh, which is okay. kind of the tamest of the dragons. Well, it's a dragon. So still a dragon, relatively speaking. Yep. Um, and then it's, um, oh wait, how's it go? It's, I didn't write down the names. I didn't even think about that. No, I'm just trying to remember. I think There's it's the short snout. I think it's. Yeah, I think it's Crumb gets the Chinese fireball yep. and Diggory gets the the uh, the short snout. The, yeah, I can't remember. It's Scandinavian. Uh, Why didn't we write down the names of the dragons? Oh, I have. I didn't even. I didn't even think I have about them in it. My notes. Um, I was just like, yeah, they're dragons. We get it. We don't get to see that's it. That's the so. coolest part. I can't. I knew exactly what the short snout was until you said ah. And then Harry, who already knows about the most ill-tempered of all of them. Uh, there, there's no the reason hum- he would get the easy one, right? No, he's no. our protagonist. Of course uh, not. <laughs> you don't uh, set it up without making it pay off. Right, because Harry's been trying to tap into, like, the the uh, Charlie the Weasley brother, like, does things with dragons. Hagrid knows about dragons. He's like, yeah. I got a support network. And they're all, ba- and basically when he walks into that room, he's like, don't get the Hungarian horn tail. <laughs> and what'd you get? The Hungarian Horntail. <laughs> um, uh, just which is fine. Which is fine. Set up Potter. and pay off, right? That's Set up right. and pay off. That's right. Uh, and there is one great little line while you're looking that up in your yeah. notes. I'll uh, just fill in here. There's a great line in the book where Harry, where, uh, you know, after they pick their dragons, he's pulled aside and, he, and Barty goes, hey, you know, do you need any advice? Do you have any questions or anything? You're the underdog here, Harry. I It would only be fair to give you a little bit of help if possible. And there's this line where Harry goes, no, I'm fine, Harry said, wondering why he kept telling people this and wondering whether he had ever been less fine. Because <laughs> that's just classic Harry. You're just like, no, no. I've got this. Internalize everything, you know. I've got this. <laughs> well, I mean, in in some ways i think that's broadly one of the arcs of this book yeah uh because you know we're gonna end this this story with him alone yeah with voldemort back in his full power with his army of death eaters all around him and harry's alone and i think it's kind of like the last time harry can get away with yeah trying to put it all on his shoulders and of course, that's going to lead to like book seven, where it it's an it's a group adventure because yes. Harry really wants to do it on his own and real and, and not <laughs> and he doesn't realize enough that like no you can't do that kid you stop being stupid he keeps relearning the same lesson over and over again but I mean he has good intentions he doesn't want his friends to get hurt but that's Swedish shorts now Swedish I knew it had to be an S yeah it had to have that nice alliteration yes, the Chinese sure. fireball that's oh, that's a good name it is a good one yes. 
JK did write good names. Those yeah. sound like, again, the thing I like about the magical creatures of the Harry Potter universe is like, they feel like the stuff we would name stuff, right? Like they, they have that nomenclature for more mm-hmm. like actual animals and how we break them down. Uh, and I love that. I, that just feels authentic in a way that, I mean, that's the whole thing about the wizarding world, right? It feels like a real place. Absolutely. It does. Uh, and not only a real place in their universe, but a place that, you know, in its own way integrates with the real world. That's in our sh- in the shadow of our real world. Yes, yes. Could be existing, especially because now looking back on it, these stories take place in the past. Not with modern technology. That's or anything, true. We, right? we, are, we are here in the lovely year of 1994. Yes, exactly. So. Now we've got to get to the actual challenge and a few oh, of the differences between... We didn't, we didn't even say, like, so the main thing is these dragons yeah. are protecting these golden eggs they and are. the champions need to collect them because if they don't, there's a clue inside yes. there that they will need to survive the upcoming yes. challenges. And so if they don't get this, they will be an extreme disadvantage for the next second challenge. And this is where we get to one of the first discrepancies between the book and the film. Yeah. So when... The characters go out, you know, they go out in the same order and the movie and the book don't show them. It's Harry hearing the crowd roar and the noise of the dragons and, you know, the the pause, the hesitancy of the crowd and all of that. And basically feeling the vibes and the energy from the stadium. But when he actually goes out, when it's time for his challenge, there are a few key differences here between the book and the film, right? Mm-hmm. So first off, in the book, the gar- the dragon is guarding a whole gathering of eggs so there are actual other dragon eggs there with one golden egg placed amongst them so it's not just swoop in and grab the one egg you've got to go in without getting one of the other eggs grab the right one and these are real dragon eggs so the dragon actually wants to protect Protect them right right? they've nestled this in with the clutch that the dragons already protected right so they have not only four dragons but a full set of eggs for each dragon that is impressive timing Lots of coordination, lots of probably <laughs> animal mishandling to create this experience I for the wizarding Bill's world. I think Bill's doing okay. I think he's humane. In his, it is the nineties. No, no. Place, I, I think so. it's like it's like a zoo, like where you're like, oh, I'm sure they're doing it humane, but maybe actually imprisoning animals as a general idea if they're not endangered is maybe not a good idea. Well, anyway, <laughs> the point is. Um, we don't know the the the, uh, the humanity uh, of dragons in the Harry Potter world. Here's the whole thing. Well, how do they make it humane? Magic. Mad. That's right. Done. Magic. Done. That's right. And Salt. chains. Lots of chains. But they're magic chains. They probably feel... Sure. They probably have like a magical cushion on the inside that just feels gentle. Like, like a warm hug. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So which one do you want to talk about first? The book or the movie? Let's go with the... Let's go with the book because it's more elaborate, and then we'll sort of cut it down to what the movie shows. Okay, okay. See, I think the movie's more elaborate, so this is going to be interesting. Interesting, okay. Okay. So in the book, Harry comes out, and he sees the dragon there guarding its eggs, and he immediately calls his broom, right? That's Harry's strategy, is to use his wand. And that's been his game for a while. He he knew that was his strategy because Moody helped him figure it out. What are you good at was their conversation. Right. And What makes you excel? And Harry's like, nothing, of course, because you know Harry. Self-deprecating all along. So... I don't know, uh, reversing the magic of dark wizards. I don't see how I can really, I don't, I don't see how having this, this scar and this love protection spell permanently on me. I don't know how that's going to yeah, help. If, but if you've got a sorcerer's stone around here. I survive. That's my skill. I survive a lot more than most. That's true. And glass, I can make it disappear. Anyway, so 
we get this moment where he calls his broom and he's immediately on his firebolt and he's up and running and he's basically the whole strategy is he's trying to lure the dragon because when he flies too close to try and get the egg, the dragon swipes at him with his tail or breathes fire, right? And he can't outrun the tail. He can't outrun the fire. The dragon is too fast. So what he realizes is the dragon does not want to leave its egg. So he sort of slowly works his way back and forth, luring the dragon. The book describes it like he's a snake charmer, really. Just... Yeah, like the, the hypnotist with the swinging pendulum, yes, just sort of this yes. bobbing target that's mesmerizing the dragon. Yeah, and as he does this, he's slowly getting higher and higher, causing the dragon to get farther and farther away from the eggs. And just as the dragon spreads its wings and gets into a position where it's going to take off and chase after him, he does a complete 180 and dives for the eggs, flying through the air directly at it, grabbing the golden egg away from the dragon and winning the first challenge in the fastest time, proving he is not an underdog. And this is important because from this point on, Harry is sort of accepted as the fourth champion. It's no like he quote unquote, this allows him to earn the position that he has. Absolutely. It gets people to stop doubting him. And it also brings Ron back to him. Right. Right. And then it also starts other problems because now Gryffindor and Hufflepuff are going their separate champions. And I'm like, yeah, no, everyone should have gotten behind Hufflepuff. Harry Potter's an interloper. (laughs) I say that as a Hufflepuff. I know, Mac. Uh, Okay. So he's the best we've ever had. (laughs) That is basically the end of it. You know, there's a lot more that happens after this and before this. But in the book, it's actually very, very short. The actual act of the challenge. What I mean. Yes, it is. What I meant by more elaborate is you hear Harry's thoughts as he thinks through the problem that it's it's not just being real quick with a broom it's the thinking of how is he going to do this and the mesmerizing and and then again the getting the clutch and then uh you know and also in the book we get a little more detail on actually what the other three champions did to solve it like whereas in the movie we don't see any that's true but that all does come after we don't get to see it in the moment yeah, I just think, well, but I mean, just talking about the event itself, we get a whole more holistic picture of everything that happens. Because in the movie, it's a movie, so they got a movie. And so, like, <laughs> the Quidditch pitch has been changed out for this dragon <laughs> dragon layer. And so we spend the first couple of minutes of Harry getting kind of showing up in here. There's his dragon across the way. Everyone's, like, got their opera glasses watching <laughs> Oh, he! Uh, this is the most one of the most ridiculous parts. Not the most ridiculous. He comes out of the pit, sees the egg dead ahead, doesn't notice the giant dragon yes. to his right until it's shooting fire at him. Because yeah. he's like, I'm sorry, I get you see the egg, you're nervous, you're, you're, you're tunnel vision, but still, you know there's a dragon. It's not that the dragon is a surprise. It's kind. And it's not small. It's. Look for the dragon, man. You almost got roasted alive. And it's not like there's enough rock formations. Like, oh, it's hiding. Madame Pomfrey does not have a drink that will bring you back from being roasted to ashes. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) Look around. (laughs) What is happening here? I... uh, a I small three-second difference from the book, but I just found it so agitating that he almost died there because he didn't look. He just started running. 
into the middle of the pit. <laughs> Are you kidding me? All right. Anyway. You're, you're right, though. But again, for a movie, it's fun that that's the, the reveal of the dragon is fun for the audience, even though, again, it does make Harry yeah. Potter look really dumb. And then he forgets to summon his broom until Hermione yells from the crowd. What is she? I wrote it down because it was stupid. Use your wand. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you don't remember to use your wand? See, like I said, this uh, is what I maybe meant by elaborate is like it's smart in the book. In the movie, it's just I it's guess. an action beat. Oh, my gosh. This is like the Goblet Painful. of Fire is the worst oh, transfer from book to movie, I think. I, I still think and six is, is – I think Half-Blood Prince is the one that suffers the most in my opinion. Half-Blood Prince may have We've gone through this many times, pacing like, issues. I know. We talk about well, this no, all no, the time. For me – Half-Blood Prince is, oh, God, we need to get Ginny with Harry, the movie. <laughs> Whereas See, in the book, it's the, did you ever want to know, like, the secrets of who Voldemort is? Because we're going to spend a lot of time yeah. at this pensive and explain his backstory, which we'll get to, like, a third of it in the seven. Yeah, that's true. In they the do two skip books over that. of seven. They do skip over two movies that, to seven. be fair. But I still think six is a better movie than this. But anyway. Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about the rest of this. So he finally does get his broom after almost getting roasted alive and speared with a tail. And he takes off and, you know, the dragon immediately breaks through its chains. Chains Proving were not Charlie strong at all. Weasley in this world isn't doing as good of a yeah. job because those chains should be magic like we just talked about. Like we, so, you know, if there had been the moment of him luring the dragon up. And then they want to trick us as the audience. Instead of having him die for the egg, the dragon breaks free of the chain and traces him. That would have been cool. But no, it's like the dragon exerts no force. And One that, flap of its wings and it's free of and the chain. And that also, and that lure and it getting maybe frenzied would be an excuse to kind of explain why they didn't plan the chain to survive that. And then, Absolutely. And then in the same thing of like, then it, then he, Harry is like spinning around and he rushes under one of the awnings of the viewing towers and the dragon just goes for it. And I love that someone in the VFX is trying their best of like, oh, no, there was an aisle where this giant tail with these six, like, you know, seven foot spikes yeah. didn't kill anyone. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I think it's magic, right? Anyway. <laughs> I just know. I think Madame Pomfrey has a busy day ahead of her. Oh, my God. Yes. Okay. So uh, the dragon chases him and they fly off towards the castle. So no one in, no one can see any of this. This is all just happening off in the distance now. Yeah. The, yeah. If you come back to the car, they're just like, I wonder what's happening. I wonder, <laughs> well, um, we'll talk about that in a minute, right? Does anyone have a scrying charm? Can we? <laughs> yeah. So Harry is trying to lose the dragon. He flies around a spire of the castle. And in Italy. For the film, this is fun because this is the first time we kind of get to see the ca like parts of the castle. Like we've seen the interior a lot, but this is a fun sort of get an idea of where is the lake relation to that. Like we get sort of it is the best overview, but we've seen so much, especially in Prisoner of Azkaban. So many good shots of the cat. I mean, I get what you're saying. You're no, right. no. It's it's, it's fun that Harry ends up like on top of one of the roofs, holding on to well, like. Well, let's talk about that. Because okay. Harry gets knocked off his broom. He's trapped on a window outcropping where his broom is kind of like below him and then up above him because he falls and all of that. Yeah. And then, and then instead of just you know flying around and roasting him alive or eating him or picking him up with his teeth or his claws or whatever. The dragon lands on the building and slowly starts to crawl across it to him. 
Okay, come on. I, okay, for, to, whose decision was this? Okay, couple things. It makes no c- sense. C- oh, okay. First off, movies are fun. They oh, are not sure, logical. they can be. I think it was I great. I would like for this one to be very. I, I much. guess my one thing is like what you would probably want is like the the, the it to like snort a little fire and realize it's out of fire juice because like I think you could sell that because. He blew a lot of fire down in the stadium. It might need to like a second to guess, get some spittle okay, back sure, in its that throat. That would have been in something. Um, I, but I mean, this is just the fun of like Harry Potter's the there. dragon I, was I, just flying and it lands to try and then I slowly just, and clumsily crawl across this roof to get I him. I just feel that it's, it's a cat playing with a mouse. That like, would be like if an eagle saw a mouse just sitting there helpless on a field and it decided to land 10 feet away and just trot on over to him. You don't think rather it's ever happened before in nature? No, I, I... I don't. I don't. <laughs> I don't buy it. And I don't, you know how much I love this stuff. I know, this is just, ridiculous. I didn't have the problem with it. You do, but I think Apparently it's not. I, 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 I cause mostly cause I'm like a dragon lands on a castle roof. That's just as a cool image. I'm I all mean, bored. it was, it was, I'm, I don't want to, don't get me wrong. It was, yeah. But when it like swirls around that tower and then on. lands and then it's if you're just gonna, breaking through the shingles. I guess my point is if you're going to rewrite it, if you're going to change it, make it good. <laughs> make well, it make sense. I think that's, I think you're seeing the fact of like, yes, they have to make it more visual because obviously that's what this is. Yes, uh, that's obviously the broom and him snake charming with a broom is not visually arresting enough to keep an audience paying attention. Uh, Uh, But I do have to admit that, like, I think it. Well, you know, the problem is, is they had sort of kind of already blown through what would be, I think, the best action set piece for this would be them just dodging and weaving through the castle and the turrets and the bridges and stuff. But we sort of already had that with, I can't remember if it was two or three, but where Harry is chasing the golden snitch in Quidditch, but he ends up in the lattice work of the, oh, of the viewing platform. That's two because it's yeah. when Draco gets the Nimbus 2001s and oh, that's his way right. onto the team. <laughs> that's right. And it's him going against Draco, I think. Right? And, and they're having fun of doing that sort of like tight space yeah. chase. Yeah. And so I guess they sort of already did that. Maybe that's why they didn't do it for this for this sequence, but like, I think that's the better thing of like having the great moments of like someone who doesn't pay attention to the tribes some professor grading papers as like behind him, a dragon and a kid <laughs> on a broom just burst through. Like and that would have been great. That would have been great. But instead, Harry just luckily grabs his broom before the dragon can tiptoe across the spire of the castle yeah. and leads him through the bridge, which causes the dragon to crash into the bridge and, Presumably fall into the lake below, Dying. killing it. I don't know. I guess that is not in the rules. You can kill your dragon. We got we get healing charms for dragons too. Yeah. I I I. Okay. Sure. I guess if we're going with the rest of this, then the dragon just happens to stop chasing him. I, I guess. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think it hits that bridge with enough force that I can understand that the dragon's busy. <laughs> okay, maybe. Maybe it's just like, you know, you punch a shark in the nose or whatever. And right, right, away. right. All right, fine. I'll believe uh, Again, because just remember. But I would believe that's... it less if they had left it so the dragon's actual eggs were back in the stadium, not just a piece of gold that it doesn't understand the intrinsic value of. So as soon as it was free, True. it wouldn't just fly away. It would chase this boy. Right. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. But just remember, in the context of the movie, they just Chris Terrio write this. Just remember, in the context of the movie, they're just hand waving the fact of the dragons have been trained to to guard this. I agree with you. The book is easier to just. I agree that I think it's 
it's in storytelling economics, it's easier just to say it's in its clutch of already existing eggs. But yeah. I can just see the writer's room where someone's like, well, did they move the nest here to Hogwarts? That doesn't make sense. And it's like, well, that's, that's true. They had the issue with it. Then they wrote that this was the, written by there's Chris There's a thing Daria, about film oh, I always think about is that there's always someone in the writer room who mentions the fact it doesn't make sense. And the reality is, of course it doesn't. It's It's pretend. None of this has real rules. We, as the writers, have to invent the rules. That's why none of this makes sense. Sure, it's sure. People's opinion that create the rules. Sure. My favorite example of this is when the Michael Bay tri- Turtles movies came out. I think those turtles are so freaking weird looking because someone in a room just said, "Well, they don't really look that much like real turtles." Of course, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles don't look like real turtles. That's not the point, man. That's that's like again. That's like like. What's the anatomy and the functions of a dragon's actual biology? I don't know. They don't exist. <laughs> Maybe what you don't know is like, it's like Reign of Fire. It's magic hour. They only see oh movement. So when God. Harry Potter's hanging from that roof. That is a better movie than the, the dragon has to land because he can't see Harry Potter anymore. I don't know. It doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense because none of it makes sense. If you like, I want to stop here and interlude because, you know, we don't do Reign of Fire all in. But if you like dragons and want a dragon-centric, not animated movie, and oh, yeah. uh, Dragonheart isn't doing it for you, uh, go, go, wa- <laughs> go watch Reign of Fire, Rain of which Fire's is, uh, what, 2004, maybe? McConaughey Ooh. and Bale? Yeah, somewhere around there. Uh, that's right. It's Christian Bale, right? In it with yeah, Christian, that's yeah, right. Christian Bale. It's is, been a while since I've seen it, to be fair. Yeah, Christian Bale um, is the, the one leader of this yeah. little community in yeah. England who was there when the dragons are released and come out of the London Underground and start <laughs> blowing up London. God. And then Matthew McConaughey is our good old American that's like right, guy coming right, in with a freaking right. battle hack to oh, fight man. these things. I've seen it at least five times. It's a good movie. But I have seen this Harry Potter movie more, to be fair. And I wouldn't be surprised that the dragon tech pioneered in Reign of Fire is some of what they use. Like, I mean, this movie came out in 05, I think, right? Uh, oh, God, yeah, yeah. No, these are fairly contemporary. So that's not, yeah. Uh, so and they anyway, also have the same thing of the, they're more like the drakes. Like they their arms are their wings kind of things. Same, yes. Same yes, critters yes. in that vein. Okay, so Harry just has managed to scare the dragon away or kill it. We don't know which. And he's... Subdued. Uh, he's subdued yes. the dragon. He is uh, sort of like cruise controlling like middling speed back to the stadium he's not moving fast right uh because he's kind of shaken up and as he comes around the corner and all the students can see him they all start cheering uh no idea what he's done but they all start cheering he's coming back he's a not dead and b does not have a dragon chasing him so he must have done something he must have done something that i assume everyone heard the bridge exploding into a pile of bricks (laughs) probably true that's probably true (laughs) they could probably hear that from the how far that sound travels yes so that happens he comes back and there is a really good transitional shot here where he swoops in he grabs the egg and as he holds it up it cuts to a scene of him holding it up in the common room with everyone one swarming around that is him. A, a great way to show the celebration of the moment without just him doing a victory lap around the stadium which is the cheap way to an easy way to do it yeah probably with a bigger cgi budget too when you're really thinking about it probably another reason they did it yeah uh but still it's a good transition for sure i like that yeah and and so that leads to the second clue which takes the second second task which is a different episode it's something we'll talk about one day i'm sure yeah but I, I i think i think we both agree uh surprise i know put your surprise face on i think the book did it better <laughs> which is true about 90 percent of yeah. harry potterness yeah um but that being said i 
I, I'm always going to be a defender of the movies of like, I love oh, having sure. visuals to all of this sure, stuff. Sure, 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 um, sure, And uh, I don't think I had nearly as many problems with this scene as you did, but that's fine. Like, it's I mean, goofier. It's definitely it's goofier. Just, it's a little, it's a tough pill to swallow, I think. I agree. Well, let's talk about something that's easy to swallow next. Let's go talk about Butterbeer. Well, we clocked the T-Rex at 32 miles an hour. T-Rex? Mm-hmm. You said you've got a T-Rex? Uh-huh. Say again. <laughs> we have a T-Rex. Uh. Put, your, put your head between your knees. <laughs> Dr. Grant, my dear Dr. Sattler, welcome to Jurassic Park. sound of you playing with expensive goggles no that's the sound of me putting a guitar string underneath a, a glass of water and strumming it so it has a perfect concentric circles running from the center of it did you know that's how they did that no i had no idea that's yeah it's a guitar that. string that they they stuck underneath and just the little tail of it sticking through that that uh pipe so the vibrations come right from the center incredibly smart it has taken us, what, we've, we've been doing the show for a while now, and yeah. we finally are getting to, I think, the whole reason we would even make a show called Jurassic Park All In. There aren't many <laughs> reasons, are there? No, that's not true. There's tons of reasons to make we Jurassic Park All In. We have many topics to prove in. that there's reasons to talk about this, this yes. franchise. Yes. But, like, the reason we're here is I think this is probably the most iconic scene breakdown we will ever do because it's, I think, the most iconic scene in the franchise. Right? Is I mean, it? It's, yeah, it has to be, it's right? It's got to be. Like, maybe someone could argue the opening doors. <laughs> like, maybe. <laughs> like, I don't know. I, as a child of the 90s, there is no way for me to have this trumped. The Jurassic Park yeah, T-Rex huh? escaping his pen scene from the original Jurassic yeah. Park is just so at the core of who I am as a person. <laughs> And uh, the core of what blockbuster movies have become as well mm-hmm. uh, is all set up by this scene as well. And so that's what we're here to talk about today is this incredible yes. moment from the 1993 film. That's right. Correct. Yep. Jurassic Park. Uh, for some reason in my head, I always want to say 91, even though I know that's not right. Well, that's but because that's when it that's when it entered production is sort of why I think that gets wired crossed because. Yeah. 
Um, like a lot of modern movies, but it was a little unprecedented at the time. Like this thing was in the can a lot longer than most movies because of the amount of post-production that needed to happen. Um, so I think at the time that was weird. Now it's like, oh yeah, of course it takes two years after you film something for it to release, (laughs) especially in a pandemic. Especially Um, in a pandemic. Yes. Uh, and it's good. They took the time because this scene and this movie still looks great today. Because they used models and they used technology in a way that, and lighting especially, especially the lighting. Oh, yeah. In a way that makes this timeless. I mean, look at how bad Wonder Woman 84 looks compared to this. A movie that's 20 years later. Well, and and, 27 years. And I think also, and I also think the thing about it is that's really changed is audience expectations have changed. Audiences actually have a huge extra buy in nowadays of, yes, Wonder Woman's in this golden plate armor. Sure, she, if that was real armor made of real plate, she couldn't move at all. But you know what? It's a movie. I don't mind thinking about the fact those (laughs) plates are actually like breathing and expanding over her muscles which doesn't make sense and she's also in power wedges why not i mean who doesn't want to fight in heels but that's another movie what i was going to say with a suspension of disbelief is this to me i think the i think the last movie that kind of did this was uh the matrix where they were so scared this stuff wouldn't work that people wouldn't believe it that they threw all that extra oomph of using every tool in the toolbox to sell it You know, the T-Rex during the course of this movie is a miniature, a life-size animatronic, a series of smaller elements like the foot and the The tail and the hand that are used as like specific elements for specific shots, one and done shots. Um, And there is, by the time you get to the visitor center at the end, a little bit of CG, just a teensy touch of CG for the, for it, because they use the right tool to get the right shot. And that's why all of it works. Absolutely. Yes. And it, it is just such a beautiful thing to see. So let's set the scene up, right? So here we have, you know, this is about 45 minutes into the movie. So this is sort of the first big action set piece that we're going to get. And this also is really the beginning of the plot of the movie kind of kicking off. This is the turn because immediately before this, we see Dennis Nedry is deciding that he's going to steal the, 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 the genomes. Yeah. Yeah. He's got his fancy Barbasol can, uh, that he got from his friend who wants to commit corporate, corporate espionage. Right. And, uh, he's going to go and, uh, shut down all the security systems so he can go and he can steal the embryos of all the different dinosaurs and get them to the rival company so they can use them for nefarious things. And also Ellie has stayed behind with the sick triceratops. So she is also Mm -hmm. no longer in the fray, but the rest of our characters, including Grant, Malcolm, the kids and the lawyer are in the electronic Jeeps finishing up the tour, heading back to the visitor center. And they're at the final attraction of the tour, the T-Rex. Right. They're, they're coming back past the, the they're coming past the, the, the T-Rex pen again after seeing the goat and nothing happened. Uh, you know, they're coming back and it's nighttime and the tour is pretty much over and they've had who knows how many other issues along the tour. Um, and so when the Jeeps stop, because Nedry is shutting down the security systems and disabling the entire park. Yes. Um, they're not really 
panicked. They're just, ah, oh, it's another glitch. You Absolutely. Know? And the whole setup, by the way, with Nedry is great. Seeing him in the computer lab and nervously talking to Hammond and Sam Jackson about how, you I know, oh, th- things are going to reset. Nothing nothing major, though. None of the major systems. Are no, 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 everything's fine. Everything's great. He's talking a mile a second. Like, it's so good. And, of course, these two other guys are just like, so personally offended by this guy. They just hate everything that he is. I mean, Sam Jackson even says, I hate this hacker crap. Well, the thing is, if there was any programmer that could do what Dennis Nedry did, they would have hired him. That's the only reason Dennis is here, because he's like the only person that can do the crap he does. And it's personally frustrating. Him and the 10-year-old girl. Well, we'll find that out later. Yeah, let's we'll not jump the gun on that. Well, again, it's 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 a major corporation. Of course, they didn't look at the female available <laughs> tiring pool. <laughs> okay, so anyway, he has the embryos successfully in the shaving cream, and we cut back to now what will be a really long scene. I mean, relative to you know when you're looking in a movie, this is a pretty long run of not cutting away to different characters. So we go to the jeep scene, right? And we have Grant and. Uh, Malcolm kind of bonding. You know, say, these, kind are, of... these are these are the Ford Explorers. These are the four by fours because the jeeps yeah. are the jeeps are the gas powered ones that can go places. <laughs> they're still Jeep branded. I think they're all as jeeps, a person right? who owned a 1993 Ford Explorer. I was very particular about that. It was a 1993 Ford Explorer. <laughs> okay, so it's not mine like... was not cool and painted like lime green okay. and orange. So but... they are. They're not like the Jeep SUVs. I just always assumed. They had no. a contract with Jeep at the park. No, I think I feel like we've had this conversation. Before. Yeah, the Jeeps in Jurassic Park are shown to be the gas vehicles that can go anywhere. They're right. for the game wardens. Right. Right. Whereas the Explorers are these custom jobbies where they they cut out the steering wheel and they put it in the rear seat. Not that you can see it in the movie, but that's how those drive. Because unfortunately, we didn't have electric EVs in 1993. <laughs> um and and again, they have this such an iconic paint job. And then they also have something that is really funny because the 1993 Ford Explorer had a rollover problem, which is hilarious because they cut the roof out of these ones to put the overarching like canopy glass over yes, top of it. Yeah, these. they have giant sunroofs, uh, custom sunroofs. I love it. Um, so this is where the scene, like we said, really starts. So Malcolm and Grant are talking about, oh, you know, hey, is is, uh, is Ellie single? Is are you guys together? Are you a thing? And of course, Grant kind of jumps to jumps down his throat. To, Don't talk about that type of thing. Whatever, showing the difference between the two characters. Um, and then, of course, we move over. Well, I should say there is the other Nedry stuff here too, where he uh, is, you know, in his jeep. Heading out again, the gas-powered the jeep because it can go anywhere. We, we've essentially figured out that Nedry is not going to reset the system. Like he stole it, but his whole thing is he's going to go get to the North Dock and he's going to get yeah. off the island. And he's sort of using the park being shut down to give him a shortcut there. Yes. And now, what I have a question about here is, as he drives, you know, his glasses are fogged up, his windshield's fogged up. And yeah, because it's a, it's a torrential downpour. The tropical yeah. storm is coming into the island. and Which puts a ticking clock on it, because he has to get to the boat in a rush before it sets sail, right? And the whole reason he's so nervous is because he didn't plan to do this right now. It's just his only opportunity. Yes, exactly. So, he's on his way out, right? And he crashes into the sign showing which way the dock is. And because and it breaks. Yeah. So because he breaks the sign, it's an arrow. And it's like it could be either direction. And he spins it because yeah. it, it's it's on a single nail. So now that yeah. he's broken it and it's loose, it could have been pointing left, it could have been pointing right, it could have been pointing forward. He doesn't know. Exactly. Now here's my question. This guy's a genius computer hacker guy, right? Yeah. 
He's going to the East Dock. Yeah. He doesn't know which way is east. Okay, first off, this is 1993, so not all of our cars have a compass built into them. <laughs> but- and two, do you think that De- Dennis Nedry has left that compound in his entire employment at Jurassic Park? I think I'm Muldoon maybe took him on a trip to let him know what the pens look like, but that's probably about it. I'm just saying. I don't think it would be that hard for a smart guy to figure out which way is east. I think it's easy to still get, like, hand wave that with, oh, he's no, nervous it's, as heck. It's a small, I'm not saying this is, like, a scene new bar, you're anything, right. Is, but it's just like, okay, it's not like he's going to dock 712. Yeah, I agree with it's you. It's the east dock. I agree it's with east. you. That, yeah, it's the east dock. I'm sorry. No, uh, I agree with you in the sense of, you would figure that, like, well, how do you get there? Well, you follow the east road. Yeah. Like, because there's, like, six roads on this entire island, right? That would be my thought, too, yes. But... Hey, I'm not a torrential downpour. He's think, got yeah. a barbersole can full of illegal He's goods. I, I'm not saying it's bad or anything. I'm just saying it's kind of a funny little thing of like, he doesn't know which way is east. Okay, fine. But I do think that scene's funny where he hits the sign. He's like, oh, <laughs> he's just like nervously kind of laughing and he spins the arrow of just, yeah. just like, it's just such a great way of just expressing just how screwed he is. <laughs> like how like, oh, I had a plan. It's going to hell. <laughs> Yes. Uh, and it's fun to watch. It's fun to watch his mental breakdown as this falls apart for him. So, right, so let's cut back to the Jeeps, Mac. Tell us about the goggles. Okay. So Tim has gone into the back because they're kids and they're bored. Yes. Um, and Tim has been opening up this stuff. And the lawyer's just like, don't open that kid. It's probably expensive. <laughs> and of course, the kid pulls out something that in 1993, my God. God, the idea of owning a pair of night vision goggles is so rad. Especially ones with such a cool Jurassic Park theme paint job. We've talked about it many times in the show. One of my favorite things is Jurassic Park as a place is I love how everything's branded. Mm-hmm. So these goggles aren't just real military night vision goggles, which to be honest, I don't know if most people knew much about those three years prior. <laughs> I really think it's the Gulf War that gave this magic to night warfare because like, you know, the U.S. soldiers were attacking the Iraqis and basically the Iraqis like, oh, it is nighttime. They can't attack us. And soldiers just putting down goggles and going and taking the stuff like night. We don't care. We got tech. And so <laughs> Tim puts these on and we see the goggles sort of adjust. They've got these little LED bulbs on all around them that I guess are supposed to be the infrared beams. I don't know why they're green since it's infrared and infrared's invisible. But the point is, it looks really cool. They're yellow and orange and green, just like everything else in Jurassic Park. And Tim's just having a fun, just sort of looking around. And then he starts, he's like one of the first ones to sort of notice like, huh, that's weird. Cause like, is it, is it, he sees the goats missing first? Is that, I'm trying to remember. Ah, no, you're okay. You're okay. So he gets he gets the he gets the goggles on, right? right. And then after the whole, are those heavy? Well, then they're expensive. Right. Put them they're down. They're heavy. Right? They're expensive. Yeah. And he's of course he's scaring it. Lex, he's scaring his sister. And then it goes to Grant and Malcolm again. Uh, Grant is getting water out of the window with the thermos because he's getting water from the rain. You know, showing the resourcefulness here early on the guy. And that's when we get the thudding of the water starting, right. right? And so this is where he uses the goggles, looks out the window, and sees the goat is missing. Where's the goat is the line. About a half second before the leg of the goat slams against the side of the car. Yes. Right? And then it cuts, you know, kind of like a pan up mm-hmm. to 
the T-Rex throwing the goat back triumphantly down its throat in a couple of bites. And this right away is just doing such a good job of setting the terror in the scene because we see how large its head is and it's against the thunder and the lightning and the rain. But it's just a quick moment of it eating the goat. And then you cut back to everyone in the Jeep or sorry, the SUV screaming. And it's the first intonation we see of the T-Rex because again, when we Mm -hmm. came past the pen, we didn't see it at all. So like a monster movie, they've done all this great groundwork to make you like, Oh, there's the goat. And Oh, we're going to see the T-Rex. No, we're not. And then, Oh no, we're at the T-Rex pen again. And "Ah, there's nothing to see here. And then the thudding and the sound of its movement is reverberating water. And then we see the leg pop, you know, against the car. And the first time we see it is we see that, yes, this is the apex predator carnivore. It's eating meat. Mm -hmm. Guess what you're made out of? <laughs> no Indominus Rex is here, baby. This thing is king of the jungle. Yeah, so, no need uh, to be invisible. It just hides because it's it's a it's T-Rex. a freaking dragon inside uh, this like freaking forest. <laughs> and of course, the lawyer immediately gets scared and runs off. Um, yeah, he panic attacks, which we can already tell that out of all of our characters in the G or in the Explorers, he he's the most nervous anyway. Because like he's so inconvenienced and like, and it's funny because. Up to this point, the lawyer has been the most positive on the park. Yeah, he's into it. Um, and yeah, so in his panic, he just freaks out. He runs out, which I think arguably is why the T-Rex notices, oh, there's people out there. <laughs> <laughs> and this is right after this is where Malcolm has the great line of, I hate being right all the time. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> which is, is he's such a side character in this. And but now just like the following and the love that that character has, I think. Uh, you know, obviously in part because of the Lost World, but because of just who Jeff Goldblum turned into well, as a person after this. When we talked about some great. of the Lost World stuff, I said, I think it's one of the issues with the Lost World is it's that whole, like, do you want to see a movie all about Han Solo? It's like, no, he's not your primary protagonist. He's something more milk toasty in front, right? And like, Malcolm is such a weird, great character that he's perfect as the side character, yeah. the cynic who's making all the, the nasty comments because he's not expected to carry the heroicism of the movie, right? He's allowed to be the cynic who ends up on morphine at the end of the movie. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> and he does it so well, doesn't he? He does. Okay. So this is where now the T-Rex sees the light from Lex's light. It's hard to switch between Rex and Lex. As <laughs> we'll just make sure you start with T-Rex. We have a yeah. T-Rex. We have the T-Rex and he sees the light that is coming from right. Lex's Right, and she's just sort of fumbling it with because she doesn't have night vision goggles and she's trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's also panicking and yelling. And of course, Tim is yelling at her to, you know, shut it off. Turn off the light, off, turn off the light. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, they're successful, but then as Tim shuts the door, right, the T-Rex notices them. And this is where things start to get a little hairy for all of our characters, isn't it? Yeah, things start to go bad here. Yeah. Um, This is just, you feel powerless watching this. I think Uh, the fun thing is, like, one of the first things you see is the T-Rex lumbers up, and it's sort of like, uh, it, it, it... notices that the electric fence is no longer electrified yeah because it knows what the fence is and it says oh oh if this isn't there i'm just gonna punch my way right through these high tension wires yeah and you have to probably think that like the fences probably give off a vibration or a sound and so the animal can probably tell when it's deactivated by that tone being emitted 
yeah, there's no longer that electric hum. Um, there's no longer, um, there's no longer that danger. And we've also seen with like they established with the Raptors of like these animals probably test their confinements every once in a while. Cause again, the shock isn't enough to kill or really harm them. It's just enough to make them go, Oh, not going to touch that. Yeah. Right. It, it's, it's meant as a deterrent and animals will naturally figure out their perimeters and not test them as long as they assume the perimeter stayed the same. Right. And so if say it's not electrified, a T-Rex might go, Oh, I don't care. There's food out there. <laughs> <laughs> and right. we hear that. Ting, ting, yes. ting, as like the wires are popping as the T-Rex is just sort of like lumbering through it. It doesn't care. <laughs> like, like obviously, and it reminds you again, the electricity is what keeps the animals in. No, we didn't actually build a fence. This isn't like a chain link fence that also could pen them in. Like without the electricity, these animals are strong enough that oh, it's not a problem for them to cut through this mm-hmm. stuff. Exactly. Uh, and this is where the real terror starts because the T-Rex crashes in the top of the Jeep or sorry, the top of the SUV. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, the, the plexiglass is now Tim and Lex are holding it up with their feet and hands as you get yeah. these great shots straight up into the T-Rex's mouth. As the T-Rex is just like testing, what is this thing? It doesn't know what a car is. Uh-huh. So it's like poking with its snout, like trying to like almost bite on it. Like, yep. And then it successfully flips the Jeep or the SUV noses over. It, yeah, noses it over. Yeah, uh, and starts eating at the tires. I love that little detail. Like Which Popping I f- the tires. Out yeah. of all the parts in a car, I assume that's the closest one to, maybe this is meat. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a really, really good moment there. Um, and then this is where, okay, so after it comes through the skylight and all that, this is where Grant has to be the hero, right? Dr. Grant, he goes into the back of his Jeep, ruffles through all the Jurassic Park pamphlets in the back <laughs> to find the case that has the flares in it, gets out of the Jeep, gets the T-Rex's attention, runs out into the rain, and throws the flare off into the jungle, thinking, oh, he got it to follow it. The T-Rex well, starts to run after it. And I'm trying to remember... Did we establish it before or is Grant established that it's based on movement? Like it's the, the T-Rex is being drawn to the movement. Well, he says, you know, shut. The, he's like sitting there watching it all unfold, going, shut the light off, shut the light off Yeah, to himself, basically. Right. But he, it's like he tells Lex later, right. like, don't move. It can't see us if we don't move. So, again, we we as the audience especially watching the second time, know that Grant sort of already mentally mapped out what this animal is probably being stimulated by and why it's going after the car. Yes. So he's things like sparkly lights that move fast will probably draw it away. Yes. And it does start to work, but then Malcolm also trying to be the hero, not to get one up, gets out of the car with a flare and gets the dinosaur to chase him. And as the dinosaur is barely Which he, like instantly regrets, he instantly regrets, <laughs> but it does work. He leads them away. He does a heroic thing in the end, throws the flare away, but the dinosaur knocks him down into the bathroom, knocks him unconscious, hurts him. Yeah. Finds the lawyer in the bathroom and gives himself a little midnight snack. Which probably is, for middle school boys in the mid-90s, probably the best scene. Because we are immature little dickheads and we just thought like, Ah, he eats the lawyer! That's funny! (laughs) The guy on the toilet! Oh, what great stuff! He was going to the bathroom, which he's not. He's not. Yeah, he's just hiding. He's just sitting on the toilet. He is not... Pants aren't down. Yeah. And it's also very brutal here. You see the oh, he gets lawyer get thrown right in up. Half. You hear the crunch. The sound effect is so um And there's believable. that little, like, a little bit like the goat. Like, there's that little, like, flip up to get the rest of it in its mouth. Yeah. It's just a, he gets the most brutal death, maybe besides, um, 
Well, I imagine. Uh, oh God, what the hell is well, the Jurassic World goes a lot. The, worse, the Hunter, um, Muldoon. Why, yeah, why can't I remember? Thank you, Muldoon. He gets even though we don't really see it. You know that death is brutal because he's well, alive. That's because being that serrated by being serrated by knives yeah. over and yeah. over until your body finally gives out is probably yeah. a worse death than the lawyer who the second it chomps, he's dead. Yeah, although like, it might be quicker than Nedry's death. Because that little Ooh. dinosaur going at Nedry, that might be worse. You're ne- blind and you're getting eaten. Yeah. And that thing takes its time probably. Like that raptor true. might cut your throat and you're done. Yeah. And I still think until we get to Jurassic World and we get to murder porn, uh, like well, sure. I, I think the compies in, in Lost World is still the worst death. <laughs> like to have just little tiny dinosaurs nibble at you till you die. Well, that's true. But well, yeah, the girl doesn't die, but I guess other people do. Yeah, oh, well, there's the one guy gets lost in the river. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he, the, point is, the point is, the point is. The lawyer, while brutal, his death is um, viscerally alarming to us as the viewers. Yeah. Like I said, the second the lawyer gets his abdomen cut in half with these teeth, his body's gone to shock. He's gone. Like, he's not experiencing the horror of being eaten. He's long gone before that. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So now Grant is able to make it over to the car. He pulls Lex out, is going back for Tim, but the T-Rex shows back up. Yes. And this is where they have that great moment of, you know, he can't see us if we don't move. And he's got his hand over the girl's mouth. Right. The T-Rex is six inches in front of them. You know, it's the breath from its snout blows his hat off. Just that really, really terrifying moment. That's so good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And again, just to set the scene. Everything is this blue night scene. It is torrential downpour of rain. And I think one of the other reasons this feels so visceral is the use of, like, the animatronic feet and mouth and, like, all those actual mechanics. The rain is dripping off of them. The water is reflecting all of that. The mud is, you know, moist and reflective and, like... These are things that with CG today, we would have a hard time selling these imageries, you know, almost, you know, almost 30 years later. Like, it's it's crazy to think of just how real this looks and how unintentionally they made things that actually make it look more grounded and harder to emulate now that they didn't intend to. They're just like, well, it should be night because storms are terrifying. Terrifying things happen in storms at night. Like giant T-Rex is coming after you. <laughs> I completely agree. It, it sells that fear so well. And it, they're not afraid to show the monster. So no. many things can be afraid because they don't want to blow the suspense. But because they're able to create such a convincing world and such a convincing moment with all of the little details, the sound effects, the music, the lighting, the environment and all that and the acting, right? Mm-hmm. It's that much more believable because of it. Mm-hmm. And it's what makes this scene stand the test of time, because even though this is coming kind of to the end of it here, you know, they make their way around the side of the Jeep. Yeah, well, they start to repel down the walls. And you could argue that this is pretty much where this scene sort of ends here. Yeah, because at this point, the the people at the command center realize they need to go and try and get them out. And it's like Madoon and Ellie end up getting Malcolm. And that leads to the T-Rex chase that actually gets the T-Rex away from things. Yeah. Meanwhile, Grant and the kids are riding a Jeep down a tree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that happens like a good bit. Like there's some time. That I mean, passes, that's that's how yeah. this this situation yeah. right, denounces. Right, but right, right, this right, is kind of right. we're gonna walk away, especially because then Mac doesn't have to get into. I love Jurassic Park. We're doing an entire podcast <laughs> about it. I love it. But also, the T Rex walks out of the pen, walks out of the pen, 
And then when humans go to that other side of that same wall that's been broken, it's now a ravine that has a tree. <laughs> it's a Kanu era the size of a planet, and I don't care because it's fine. But it is one of those things I've, I like. I have watched it a hundred times trying to go, well, maybe it's from the other side. No. <laughs> the T-Rex walks out on flat ground, and then that flat ground disappears. <laughs> it's okay. It's really good, and it's fun, and I love this movie. But, man, does that drive me nuts. <laughs> Maybe it's like uh, just it's two feet off the side of the screen. We can't see it. Yeah, there's it just a little out. peripheral where he just tiptoed his way. <laughs> no, no, fun. no. I like I like to see it of like we're at the corner of the T Rex's pen. On one corner of it is the gate, you know, the the, right. the the ropes and whatever the electrified fence, and then on the other corner of it is a ravine. It's like at the cross street is where we're at. I like where your head that, is going. I have played this experiment too, but the point is it doesn't make sense, but it doesn't, it doesn't have matter. to make sense because it passes the, the ice box test. When you went home, you weren't, you then thought, wait, did that T-Rex walk out of that ravine? That doesn't make sense. It <laughs> doesn't matter because in the moment you're going, Oh my God, Tim is going to get eaten. <laughs> Dr. Grant's going to get eaten. Everyone's going to get eaten. <laughs> yeah. So you don't care. And it's great. And, and then again, Especially, I mean, for how long did we have jokes in pop culture about the the vibrating water? You know, the the sound of thunder oh, of yeah. these feet coming towards oh, yeah. you, the dread of like this sea. Pop culture staple. Oh, it's so good. And it and it deserves to be. It's amazing. There's so many things that are amazing in the Jurassic Park franchise. Are you ready to talk about another amazing thing? Yeah, let's get to something else. All right, so we're going to head over and talk about Paul Kirby on the next segment of Japan. this one home talk about Ooh. a doorbuster episode i uh i have watched return of the jedi entirely too many times it was a blast recording this but it's like it's funny that parts of it are still like oh man i've uh jabba's palace like i'm so over it <laughs> oh man see for me i feel like jabba's palace i mean we talked about this at nauseam already so i won't keep adding <laughs> sure. but jabba's palace is the part that still gets me every that's, time and that's great I, I i hope you folks enjoyed listening to it yeah. as much as we did it's an enjoy episode it. of the mandalorian it's <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> that's a good way of putting you it. know oh man so that was fun but that wasn't all we talked no. about Seo Bibble. Uh, I'm glad you, I haven't caught up on the Queen's book, so I'm glad you had that uh, to bring. Yeah. I'm so glad we um, focused so much on his wardrobe. I, <laughs> you know, he's a snappy dresser. We had to talk about it. He is. And, and then, that of course, prim and process beard. I love uh, it. I, 
you know, when we pitched the idea we we're going to do a commentary and then other topics, I didn't. I was hoping we picked two topics that were small to talk about, yeah. but I was amazed how much we had about CEO Bibble. And more importantly, digging into the research, how much about Ray's dad actually oh exists? Oh my God, did you know he was born on Alderaan? No. Well, cloned on Alderaan. Well, cloned on Alderaan. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, when you're strand casted, it gets weird. Well, yeah. it's fun to know that it was that far back in the yeah. timeline is yeah. this, this thought out thing that it isn't mm -hmm. just a fly by night thing in rise of skywalker that like palpatine is mm -hmm. this has been part of palpatine's plan mm -hmm. he had a continuation plan for himself mm -hmm. if like in the prequels we see he always has like two or three solutions to get his ends mm -hmm. right um or that like there's like what would you call it? like a novella like that thing on starwars.com where it describes the wedding and how he proposes to Ray's mom mm -hmm. and how they end up being you know wed and yeah. like in the bowels of Coruscant who saw that coming I was gonna say I mean but like it's that nice secret wedding it, like mm -hmm. it has really the opposite of Anakin and Padme right ceremony. where they're in that beautiful spot like yeah. this is like desperate and hard yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. you know they've got uh, you know all, it's really great and, and, and of course it leads to weird things like he picks his best man as Bosk. There is no universe yeah. other than like Bonnie Burden wanting it. Like of anyone wanting Bosk to be part of that story but like after the Clone Wars built him up, like that's where he should be. That makes I sense that he's in the character. scene for yeah. that. It's a good ending for that character too, you know, for that moment of the saga. And it, and and then the last thing we found out is that that prequel novel, which apparently was only, was it German? Was it German or Swedish? You looked it up. It was German yeah, or Swedish. Yeah, no, I, no, right. We German. just read the translation of like yeah. where, like it explains how like Anker Plot, like actually how he's really the hero of the story. He's mm -hmm. not this cruel master. Mm -hmm. He's mm -hmm. taking all the risks to yeah. protect Ray, right? It was nice to get some more Zuvio content in that story, too. Man, there still needs to be more Zuvio content. Mm -hmm. I wish mm -hmm. Zuvio had as much on the bone as Sheev Jr. here does. Still weird he doesn't have, like, an official name. I'm still going to call him Sheev Jr., but, I like, know, I know. there's all this stuff written about him, and he doesn't... It, you know, it's fine. You know what? He's we'll one of there. those cool mystery characters. Mm -hmm. But I think we have talked enough for today. Oh, boy. <laughs> it does feel like it sometimes. But you know what? That's all part of the fun of Star Wars All In. It is. It is. You know what? There's... I'm not going to talk about news. We'll get to that next week. Ugh. For today, I'm Mac. And I'm Ross. And until next Wednesday. April Fools, everybody. Happy April Fools. Yes, it's April 1st, and uh, we are uh, yet again having fun with uh, one of my favorite ho holidays, the bane of journalists everywhere, the day where we all make fun of and celebrate misinformation. <laughs> the day my hopes and dreams were crushed when I realized I couldn't buy a Voltron cat on though. Oh my uh, God. Man, Think Geek's not around. You can't get the Think Geek jokes. Oh Dude, like, man. with, I understand after 2016 and stuff, I and the pandemic and the virus, I understand why misinformation isn't haha -ha funny as much as it could be, but I also feel that like April Fools celebrates the idea of like critically think people. You would a cat would a Voltron cat uh, jungle be awesome? Yes. Did they really make that? Well, I mean, they could have. Like they could have, but they didn't. <laughs> like all I I'm saying is, at the time, it may have seemed far fetched, but now I think there's a market for it. Well, you know what? Thinking really ran into this is something relevant to us to hear at Star Wars All In was it all started with the Tauntaun bat backpack that, or not backpack, sleeping, sleeping bag, bag yeah. with the lightsaber zipper pull. Yeah. Uh, 
that was a joke and they had to end up making that because of customer demand. And that's sort of, I think, what ruined maybe some of you in Thinksgiving's jokes is like, because they ended up making some of those April Fool's Day projects, <laughs> you kind of get entitled like, you should make them all because some of them are really good. If demand is high enough. And, and again, it's 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 five combining lions. Like, it screams <laughs> cat tree. It does, doesn't it? Yes. All right. Well, we hope oh, you yes. enjoyed our little trip to the alternate universes. Uh, if you are very confused by what's happening, then you obviously didn't listen to us last April Fool's. Um, we, That's okay. Uh, we, we enjoy the fact of just sort of taking a break and doing some other topics. We try to give them the all Star Wars all, all in treatment. We hope you enjoy them. Uh, and uh, it's just kind of a fun little break for us to uh, go and, and dabble with other other versions of it ourselves is. having other podcasts. It's a nice palate cleanser to uh, dip into some of our other fandoms. Yeah. So I hope you enjoyed it. Um, and uh, keep a, keep an eye in the future. Uh, there's a... Uh, the future's always in motion. You never know yeah, where things certain things happen. might show up. Things uh, can happen. So I hope you enjoyed this. There's stuff to talk about. We'll talk about it next week. Again, if you're following the, the casting is announced for Obi-Wan, that's super happening. It's great. Mm-hmm. But I think we've talked your ear off enough this week. So for realsy this time, I'm Mac. And I'm Ross. Until next Wednesday. May the force be with you. This production is not endorsed by any other property and is the sole responsibility of Mac Purvis III, Ross Greco, and those involved in its production. It is meant for entertainment purposes only. Other than content provided by this production's providers, all music, music clips, sound bites, rights are reserved, and their respective owners have not endorsed any aspect of this show. Copyright 2021.